Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information about Home Church, visit us at myhomechurch.org. Amen. All right. Are you guys ready to continue our journey in the book of Ephesians? It's been really awesome. Um, excited for it. So here we are. Uh, go ahead, open up. If you don't have your Bibles, we'll have it on the screen here as well. Oh, I have to take this down. I'm sorry, so that people can see the screen. I do love it, though. Can I give this to you, Dina? <laughs> so I just really encourage you to, um, to open up, or if you can follow there. If you have it in front of you, that's even better in case we bounce around and they're not able to just track with it um, especially. But let's just, I just want to give some context for, for where we're at, and then we're going to jump in and let just our hearts be touched by the presence of God, again, through his word. Um, but up until this point, um, chapter one, we've uh, we've pr- pretty much you can separate it. Paul has lifted up praise in that beginning part, verses three to fourteen. If you were here, Paul describes how God, both Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all of them have been working salvation on our behalf. God the Father initiated it, Christ accomplished it, and now the Spirit brings it into experience. All of this is unto the praise of His glorious grace. And then last week, as Pastor Johnny was unpacking, Paul then lifts up a prayer. So there's this intermingling of praise and prayer as we start. And this prayer is ultimately that we would know, that we would know three, three things. The hope to which we've been called, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints, which is a profound statement. Although we have a rich inheritance, uh, there's also an emphasis there that God declares he's rich. And you say, God, what makes you rich? And he says, look at this inheritance. He has the saints um, that's a profound statement that God would identify as rich because of the, the saints that he is receiving through what his son has accomplished. And then lastly, and this will be important for today, he prays that we would know the immeasurable greatness of the power towards us who believe. <laughs> and that's going to be a, a significant part. So as we go into chapter 2, again, just bear with me. Context really helps us to then go full steam ahead so we're all like together. Um, chapter 2, I would say, like, the big banner over it is salvation, this great salvation. And what we're going to read this morning, verses 1 to 10, is salvation more from the individualistic perspective, uh, our new position in Christ as an individual. Next week in verses 11 to 22, it's our new position as a body. Um, some incredible statements of how Jew and Gentile have been brought together as one. So the entirety of chapter 2 is salvation. And what we're looking at today is first from more as an individual. Next week, it's our new position as a body. Um, but what's really like deep in my heart as I'm reading through this this week is, is the words of Hebrews uh, 2.4 where it says, Do not neglect this great salvation. <laughs> and uh, man, I just I feel as I'm going through this that we have a great salvation. <laughs> And it's because we have a great God. And I, I've, I feel that just by sharing this, we, we heed the words of Hebrews 2.4 that we do not neglect this great salvation. Why is it great? This is important. I think two, two reasons why. One, because of what it accomplishes. So he takes those, as we'll see, who were dead and cut off and makes them his own as his children of God and bestows like mercy and grace and gives them hope and just a whole catalog of blessings. So it's great because of what it accomplishes. But this is very important for today. It's also great because of the power that was necessary to accomplish it. It did not require just a little bit of God. It requires this unbelievable demonstration of power to take us who were dead and make us alive. 
And what I want us to see this morning is if the banner over this text is our great salvation, right under that is the power that was necessary, that was required, and that God willfully demonstrated to bring us into life. And the idea is that we would stand in awe. Like, the thing that's ringing in my, my heart is, are we amazed that we're Christians? <laughs> Because we should be. And I believe what Paul's writing here is he wants us to stand back and say, I am amazed that when I consider the state that the Bible says I was in, God who is rich in mercy demonstrated a power so strong that he didn't just bring me to neutral ground. He made me his own now. I'm with him. This should like cause us to be in awe of this. So listen carefully. Go to actually chapter 1 for a moment and verse 19. So we're in chapter 1, verse 19. That might not come on the screen, but you can just, you can hear it. Remember, Paul, I want you to see this context. Paul prays three things, that we would know the hope to which we've been called, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints, and then verse 19, he says this, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? Now, what that's meant to strike in our hearts is, what type of event does Paul have in mind where this type of power was necessary and required by God, and that he did it and demonstrated it. And interestingly, Paul right away does not tell us. Instead, he likens it and says, Christ illustrated this power for us. This is what Johnny was sharing last week. So before he ever tells us where this power was demonstrated, he first says, guys, this is the same power that was uh, demonstrated and, and used to raise Christ from the dead, raise him up to such a degree that now he's seated in the heavenly places above every principality, rule, and authority. Paul says the power that it took for us to be saved is not kind of like that power. It's not a part of that power. He says it's the very power that took Christ from the grave and lifted him up far above everything. He says that's the same power that God released over your life. Because as we'll see, the gospel is not just that we were misinformed and got new information. But we were captives, enslaved under bondage, and the blood of Jesus has, was shed and literally has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son. So he, he just, all he does is say it's illustrated by Christ, but he never finishes where this, this, this took place until chapter 2. So what I want you to almost picture is that verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2 is basically commentary to verse 19 of chapter 1. What is the immeasurable power uh, of greatness of power towards us who believe, now Paul will tell us. Now Paul's going to. And I will tell you, this power is always evident in our lives. Uh, we have it to this day. It's living through us. But there was a moment that Paul has in mind, and that's what we're going to look at, okay? So last thing that I'll say to help us frame out this morning is that in order for Paul to get us to appreciate, that's not even the right word, but like marvel at the power of God. He first has to describe the condition we were in prior to Christ. And so what you're going to see is two things. He's going to first in 1 to 3, verses 1 to 3, he'll describe our condition prior to conversion, prior to Christ. And then he's going to look at us after Christ or in Christ, I should say, after conversion. And the point is this. He's going to go pretty deep into where we were prior to Jesus. That's He's, now, he's writing to believers. He's saying this not to beat them over the head, but to cause them to marvel and celebrate, again, at the greatness of power in our lives. So this, in some respects, may take some of us further than we were even willing to admit about our own lives. But what I found is that I actually let it take us there, because the more it takes us there, the, the, the sweeter the grace is when it rises us up. 
Like, that's the way we fall in awe at the power of the gospel is to truly know the state according to God's testimony um, that we were in. So verses 1 to 3 is our condition before Christ, and then verses 4 to 10 will be who we are after. You guys with me? Okay. So just you, you don't want to leave halfway through this message. <laughs> uh, you want to go all the way through in this, so just, just bear with me. But Again, the deeper we go, the sweeter and the greater the power is. And I believe it's going to cause awe in our hearts. I really do. So he, Paul, in these first three verses, will give five statements about our condition prior to Christ. And that's how kind of we'll, we'll read through this. All right. So verse one of chapter two. Here's the power. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So just stop for a moment. Paul says that you were dead in your trespasses. You is referring to every Gentile believer in Ephesus. Remember this letter circling around. This is very important. In verse 3, he will say, and we all. Uh, he'll include now himself and all Jewish believers. Why is this important? Because Paul, what we're about to read, guys, Paul is not simply describing some really unusually depraved society. He's not just describing some unique group in the, in the pagan day that he lived in. Paul is giving universal descriptions of every human being outside of Jesus Christ. Anyone who is not in Christ, this is what the Bible says is the actual portion that they are living. It's the atmosphere. It's the reality that they're tasting. And so Paul says, all of us were once dead in our trespasses and sin, and we once walked that way. So dead in trespasses and sins. Um, those two words are, although distinct, when they're used together in Scripture, it, it kind of takes it to, like, the highest degree. Uh, for those of you who are, like, English majors, it takes it to, like, a superlative, like the ist. It's not just hot, it's the hottest, right? So here, this is rising, like, this degree of rebellion is what it's saying. Point is, Paul is not saying, he's not talking about isolated acts of sin. He's not talking about inadvertent mistakes that every born-again believer experiences. Paul is speaking about an entire conscience that is set on rejecting God's will and living counter to the will of God. All right, so this is what he's saying, that, that, that they were dead in their really hostility and rebellion in which we all once walked. The word dead, that may sound kind of unique or, or interesting or bizarre, because when I think about my own life prior to Jesus, I felt pretty, in one sense, uh, it looked pretty alive, <laughs> And when you, when you examine the world and you think about individuals who are openly confessing that they do not follow Christ, this can seem kind of odd because Paul's saying everyone's dead, but then you look at sport athletes who are physical specimens, they seem physically alive. I mean, they're literally like every part of their body, they are fit. Think about scholars who are brilliant, their minds, they stimulate like deep thought. I mean, they're, they're beautiful minds. And then you think about TV stars whose personalities are charismatic and so on, right? Go through the whole thing. They're physically, intellectually personalities. They're alive and vibrant. But Paul is saying that's not the true picture, though. It may look like that, but Paul says their souls are dead, as was ours. It's, it, we were cut off from the author of life. No matter how good it seemed outwardly, physically, intellectually, we are Deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit, cut off from the author of life, we're insensitive to the ways of God, and ultimately we're dead in that place. We're dead in that place. This tells us, guys, so important that there's a theology of death that comes out of this, is that you can be alive but dead. It's really important. 
Like when Adam was told not to eat of this one tree, surely you will die. When Adam ate, did he die physically? No, but he did die spiritually, but he still lived, but he was in death. And this is the state of every single person. They may be alive, but they're dead. The prodigal son, when he returned, the father said, here is my son whom was dead, but now is alive. He was living, but he was dead. When, when Adam was created by God, he, he was created in perfection. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation. Think about the, the attention to detail, how meticulous God had wired us. No computer program is a match for how incredibly complex our bodies are, the cells, the mind, everything about it. And yet Adam made in perfection, in all of that beauty, still lie lifeless without the breath of God in him. Without the spirit of God, he was still dead. Listen, you can have beauty and be dead. You can have beauty outwardly and still be dead. This church, we can have beautiful buildings, beautiful gatherings. We can have beautifully prepared messages that are theologically perfect. We can have beautifully worship sets set, and we can be dead without the spirit of God. That's not the marker. We need the spirit of God. Man, can I... I got to share something personally and honest right now in my own life is that I, I, love, the stu- I love to study God. I love the study of it. And I, the Lord told me this week, Andrew, do never, never forget how I've wired you and how I've wired this body. In all of your study and all of that, make sure you never forget I've created you and this church to be a presence-centered church where the Spirit of God is moving mightily. I don't, I don't want to just present something so beautiful like intellectually that we but we just it lacks the life of God I don't want to preach past glory I don't want to preach past presence I don't want to sing songs past presence because God says stop here but we got to get through the set right that's why we don't we're not like that and I just feel we want man we need life and and life is found by the spirit and the point here is that you can be you can be dead or I should say you can be alive and be dead at the same time and it says here that they walked this is the way in which you once walked. Guys, you know what this means? We walked in this state. <laughs> Think about that. We were the epitome of the walking dead. <laughs> this is the state that we lived in. Now, again, just bear with me because in order to understand the power, we have to understand before God, we're walking in death. It's the atmosphere we lived in. All my decisions, no matter what I was doing, this is what it was contributing to. And part of, I think Paul using the, the language death here is to get us to see that we're completely incapable of bringing ourselves out of death. It's very important. <laughs> what corpse can resurrect himself? If, if a man is on a hospital bed and he flatlines, can that man bring himself off that bed, get the shocks and apply it to his chest in order to be resurrected? Of course not. Once he flatlines, his only hope is that someone from the outside will come and take that power and apply it to his own life. This is the gospel. All of us without Jesus were flatlined. The only hope we had is someone from the outside to come with the power that was needed to resurrect us, and he did, (laughs) and he brought it. And so we keep reading verse 2. It says, because we were dead in our sins and trespasses in which we once walked, it also says in that state we were following the course of this world, which means we were living in step with the ways of the world. We were... There was a peaceable union between us and the world that we couldn't even see. (laughs) 
And world here is not like the beauty of God's creation. World really means like the fallen state of the world, right? So it's not that the creation itself is bad, but it's talking about the fallenness and how the, the values and the priorities of the world that we live in is not in alignment with God's will. And the thing is, prior to Jesus, we were in lockstep with those type of priorities and values and didn't even know it. Just following the course of the world. Can I, can I tell you, I think... I believe that as Christians, our lives should produce a natural friction because we don't follow the course of the world. Now, do you take it as you may? I'm not, I'm not advocating that we are trying to be intentionally like rude or something like that, but I believe just by the way that we live, we don't follow the course of the world anymore. And so there should be, this is a good indication of my own life when I say, wow, I'm, you know, like the concept worldly. <laughs> the Lord will be like, Andrew, when I don't feel that friction, I know I'm getting a little bit too worldly. <laughs> To be honest, when I don't feel that, I'm not saying I'm looking for, like, people to be angry at me, but when I just don't feel like, man, I feel kind of out of place when this is being talked about or discussed, I know that something is not right internally, right? So this is the way that we once used to walk, but it gets even deeper than this, guys. It says, when we followed the course of this world, we were not just following the environment we were in, but listen, this is so important. We were following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So let's, let's just call this for what this says. Prior to Jesus, dead in our sin and trespasses, following the ways of the world, we were actually captive to Satan. This is really, really significant. That This is saying that when we were living apart from the Lord, there was an actually an unseen power exerting influence over our lives because we were dead in sin. Which means for all of us that without the Lord, prior, I'll speak for myself, prior to Jesus, I was not just living it up. <laughs> I, I wasn't just experimenting. I wasn't just young and stupid. <laughs> I was all those things. <laughs> but there was something much more. And what this is saying is when we were living apart from the Lord, although we were doing all of this stuff, there was something behind it that had us enslaved. We were literally following a different master. This is why, as I said before, the gospel has to be more than just giving new information. This is why I believe the gospel has to be more than self-help. The gospel has to be more than just lofty and wise words saying, look at all that I've learned. The gospel has to be demonstrations of power. Oh, that we would heed Paul's words, who says, I didn't come with lofty speech. I didn't come with really clever and wise sayings. If I did, you'd boast in the wisdom of man. But he said, I came with demonstrations of power that you would not boast in man's wisdom, but in the wisdom of God. Because what people need, what I needed, was I needed the power of God to touch my life. And so when we preach the gospel and we share and we minister, let us not forget that what, let's see the real picture that people are enslaved. This is why deliverance is so essential to the ministry of the new covenant. Jesus went around ministering, and when he did, many people were delivered. Why? Because we were under the power, prince of the power of the air. Amen? Jesus came to set free. Man, I really think, like, honestly, I, I don't know where I'm standing all this, but I just, I'm really getting convicted by Paul's words of how he taught. I'm really convicted when I think about how Jesus taught. <laughs> Because here I am, again, it's like I want to go deep and study all these things. And then I think about Jesus. Guys, if Jesus ministered in this place, I'll be honest, without him being Lord and Savior, I'd be deeply offended at the way that he taught. 
I'd say, you need to go back to homiletics class. You don't have a study of preaching. Where's your perfectly expository preaching in this? I'd say, Jesus comes in and goes, see the birds of the air? (laughs) See the flowers in the field? Why are you so worried about what you're going to eat and drink? Are you not more valuable than these things? (laughs) And I'd be saying, okay, when is he going to get to, like, the three points, though? He'd say, look at at the, the fields. Or walking past the vineyard and saying, I'm the vine, and you're the branches. And then he'd say, just so you know, the kingdom of God is here. I call all of you to turn and repent. Bring the lame, bring the blind, bring the sick, and all of a sudden, everyone's hearts are being touched. All, all I know is, like, this is the gospel that we need. <laughs> That's rooted in truth, but is rooted in demonstration. All right. So, oh, here's something else that's very important. Why does, why does Paul use the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work? Why didn't he just say Satan, right? Like, that's a really weird phrase. Again, I think it ties into Paul's emphasis. He could have just said, hey, all of you basically were under the influence of Satan, all of us. But he says the prince of the power of the air because what's his goal right now? To show us the immeasurable greatness of the power towards us who believe. What he wants us to see is, guys, all of you are under a power, but a power showed up in your life that was greater. (laughs) And it broke that power over your life. Why does he say the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience? I believe it's because it's, it's a kind of a, a parody. Romans 8 says we walk not by the spirit, but the flesh. Uh, we walk, we don't want to walk by the flesh, but by the spirit, right? Paul's not contradicting himself, but what I think he is saying is that everyone walks by the spirit. The question is, what spirit do you walk by? <laughs> That's actually what he's saying. He's saying there's really no such thing as just walking by your natural ways, the reality is, is every single person is under the influence of a spirit. Is it Holy Spirit or the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience? But everyone was under that, and God has brought us out. And then verse 3, he says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires. Oh, my page is sticking. carrying out the desires of the body and mind. So he also says we lived in bondage to the flesh. (laughs) Paul just keeps like driving this thing deeper and deeper. Um, I don't believe Paul is by any means condemning uh, physical desires. That's important. Uh, I kind of grew up trying to suppress desires that God actually gave me. The issue is not the desire that's God given. The issue is how we satisfy it. And if we're not careful, we we either overindulge in something or we satisfy that desire outside of the confines that God gave us, right? So even take, for example, like hunger. Hunger is a beautiful desire God's given us. <laughs> so much fellowship and ministry and just a joy with families come around the table. But, of course, the extreme is you can go into gluttony or you can go to the other side of, like, anorexia and starvation, right? The, so what Paul is saying is without pride of Christ, we were just enslaved to our desires, Even the good desires God gave us, we couldn't control them or we couldn't meet them in the way that God designed. Therefore, they were actually breeding death rather than life. You know, this is really important too. Sorry, I I know we're like teaching heavier, but when we minister, this is actually for our own lives, but when we minister to other people as well, Paul is explaining a triad of influences in our life. The world, which is your environment, your own flesh, which is your desires that come from like the fallenness, self-centered desires, and then the devil or some type of demonic influence. Why this is important is because when you are ministering to someone who you see clear destructive behavior in their life, 
the tendency for me is to always want to make it too simple <laughs> and always say it's this or always say it's that. But what actually we need to do as we're going to grow in ministers is to realize there are usually three things that are contributing to the brokenness in that person's life. And some, and most of the time, one of them is the leading cause. Meaning for some, the reason why they do what they do is because of the environment they grew up in. Like broken home, broken family, and that's really caused it. Others, it's actual just desires that they're not learning to have satisfied in the Lord. Or for others, they actually need deliverance, right? But if we don't know that, we can start claiming everything is this and actually not bring real full counsel to their lives. Yes? So, for example, uh, obviously we know that demonic influence is real. But we also need to be careful that when someone is struggling with something, we just say, oh, you're a victim to a satanic power and you just need deliverance. No, sometimes Paul says it's actually just their own desires being carried out. And we really just need to walk them through how to repent and put that to death and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? Now, at the same time, you may be doing something that, uh, engaging in something, we're just thinking, hey, just stop it. But you actually need deliverance in your life. There really is something, right? So that's the point. All right, last thing. The last statement of this. And then we get to the beautiful news. This is by far probably the most sobering, he closes out verse 3 by saying, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So this is a pretty um, powerful description, this whole set, but this one in particular. Uh, let me just say this before we move on. The, the wrath of God here, um, this is not describing that like the bad, a bad temper of God. Um, it's not describing that, hey, you finally just rubbed God the wrong way long enough that now he's going to lash out on you. Uh, or you've caught him like in this crazy mood. Um, the, the wrath of God is so beautiful, but we need to understand the realness of it if we're not in Christ. The wrath of God is really his righteous anger towards everything that's unholy or towards everything that violates his will. Now, why this is so beautiful, though, is because in essence, God's divine wrath functions, uh, is a function of his divine love, meaning for his wrath is actually an expression of his love for truth, justice, holiness, righteousness, purity, life. In other words, God will pour out his, la uh, his, his wrath in order to promote that which he loves and cherishes, in order to preserve it, which is purity, righteousness, joy. This is why in the book of Revelation, the church is found celebrating and rejoicing at the judgments of God and even his wrath. Because when there's injustice, Part of the good news is not that we've been saved, but that God is going to make every wrong right. Even us, even like, think about what's going on in the Middle East. All you have to do is listen to some of these stories of the atrocities that are happening to kids and families. Even me as a broken man, there's something inside that's like, this is not right. How much more is God who's morally perfect, right? So he's, he'll, he'll make everything right. Now, for us, what that means is, though, if we're not in Christ, we come under the, the category of unrighteousness, right? So, therefore, he will confront that as well. But his desire is that none shall perish. His desire is that all shall come into his son, that they may have life. But at the same time, he will not deny who he is, right? You can almost say it this way. Uh, I thought this was kind of a trippy saying as I was going through this. But we're saved by God, from God, for God. <laughs> Meaning we're saved by God, grace, from God is wrath, for God, intimacy, adoption, forever and ever. Uh, it's just this beautiful thing that the Lord has, has done. Amen. Um, and it says, it's important to note, it says that we're this by nature. By nature, we're children of wrath. Um, so what that means is that 
the opposite of that is that you, you, um, you would become something. By nature means it's innate, it's, it's who we are, it's essential. Uh, versus the opposite of that would be we're made into it. It's something that we become over time. When it comes to being a child of wrath, it actually says this is who we are by nature, meaning this is original sin. We're born into this place of separation from God. Hence, we must be born again, <laughs> right? So Paul says all of this, and then finally we come into this beautiful thing that he has done in our life. You guys with me? If you got through that, then you can get through this. <laughs> So listen, summarize it this way. Up until this point, Paul, wanting to express the power of, the, of salvation, has said this. Essentially, we are this. We are corrupted by sin. We are captive by Satan. And ultimately, apart from the grace of God, we are condemned to be eternally separated from the Lord. Or you could say it this way, as it says in the scriptures, we're dead in sin, disobedient, and ultimately doomed as children of wrath. And I just want you to think about this for a moment. In this state... Of, of corrupted, in the state of captivity, in the state of being condemned and ultimately a path of being cut off, God looks upon you and me and says, i rather die than live without them. God looks upon us in that state of bondage and says, i rather lay down my own life than live in eternity without them. Do you know something fascinating? In Hebrews 2, verse 17, when it describes Christ becoming fully man, it says he, uh, he did not come to help the angels, but the offspring of Abraham, which is us. Think about this. What this is saying is that when the angels rebelled, led by Lucifer, God didn't move off his throne. The angels rebelled, and God didn't take one step. He let them go. But it says, when little old you and me said, I'll be my own God, and as a result, we reap death and destruction, God steps off his throne and says, I don't think so. And he clothes himself in flesh and says, I'm coming to bring you back to myself. What <laughs> grace by God, what amazing mercy that God has shown us. Some say it's so offensive that Christ is the only way. <laughs> May I rephrase, like, rephrase that? If you consider all that God has done from the beginning and how over and over man has turned from the Lord, he made covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, meaning he's essentially proposing to use the language of marriage. And while he's doing that, they're at the base of the mountain committing spiritual adultery already. Can you imagine in the natural proposing to your wife and she's committing adultery right there? You have all of this going on, and then he sends prophets and everyone else, and they reject him. Finally, he says, I come myself, and they put him on a cross and crucify him. When you think about all this, the question is not why is there only one way. The question is why is there a way at all? <laughs> why is there still a way? But it's this, because he's so good and he loves us that God has not given us over to our own ways. And so verse 4, maybe not two sweeter words in all of the scriptures, it says, but God, but God in this state being rich in mercy, meaning God took action. Guys, if, we, if God did not step in, one through three would still be our reality to this day. It would be our portion. This is meant to say, oh, my goodness, but God, not but Andrew, not but, hey, I got over time. I, you know, I just started to make some really good choices. <laughs> I, I have changed, but only because but God first happened in my life. And he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved. My goodness, but God, who is rich in mercy, 
which means why did God do this in the state that he found us? Not because he's obligated, not because it wasn't burdensome, it's from heartfelt compassion. God, the fatherly side of God, looking in our state of hopelessness, his compassion is aroused when he saw us, our weakness of state, that we are but from dust, Psalm 103 says. And that doesn't put him, make him frustrated. He doesn't say, just get yourself together. But he comes in compassion to do for ourselves what we cannot do for ourselves. And he's rich in mercy, meaning uh, it's infinite. He's not stingy. Myriads and myriads of people for thousands and thousands and thousands of years have been drawing on the mercy of God and it still remains this unmined wealth of riches. <laughs> the, the mercy tank of God has been drawn on for thousands and thousands and thousands of years by thousands and thousands of people and yet the tank still overflows. He's merciful to this day. God stands before us ever wanting his children to return to him. And then he says he's rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. My goodness. <laughs> I won't bore you with the tense here, but I'll give you the application, which is beautiful. It says because of the great love with which he loved us. Which he loved us. Notice it does not uh, uh, speak of a beginning, nor does it speak of an end, nor does it even speak of progression along the way. <laughs> All we know about God is he loved us. <laughs> this love had no beginning. This love has no end. And his love is not growing over time. It is the fullest, most complete love forever. When did it start? I don't know. He loved us. <laughs> this love existed before the ages began. This Rome, Romans uh, 5, 7 says, For God demonstrated his own love in that while we're yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Very important, though. The cross of Christ is not Jesus winning the love of the Father for us. The cross of Christ is the expression of the love of the Father that's always existed before the cosmos were ever created. It's like Jesus is on the cross saying, this is how much the Father loves. He comes in that which was eternally in his heart. There was a moment in history when the Son went to the cross where he said, I want the world to see what's always been in my heart for my people. Which he loved us forever and ever. And then verse 5 says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, your death and your sin barriers were no match for his love and mercy. And he made us, made us alive together with Christ. Guys, let these things provoke you into deeper study. These aren't just words. There's substance to be made alive with Christ. This is a real experience. Just as walking in death was real. I tasted it. I knew what it felt like. Walking alive with Christ is a real experience. I pray like Paul that we would manifestly like walk in the life of Christ. That is your portion in Jesus. That is your inheritance. It's not just Christianese saying, saying, I know we say we're alive, but gosh, I'm breeding death all over. If that's the case, something, something's wrong because he's brought life that you would taste and you say, yeah, but Andrew, where do I find that? What does that look like? You don't need to search the ends of the world. I would encourage you to start here. Just go back to verses one to three and reverse it. <laughs> you want to know what it looks like to be walking and made alive in Christ? means that you're no longer dead in your trespass and sins. You have victory over the very things that once enslaved you. You're no longer enslaved by the prince of the power of the air, but you're made alive in Christ. Go through that list, and you'll find what it means to be made alive in Jesus. It's a real experience. And then he says, Paul almost has to stop himself and erupt. He says, by grace you have been saved. Verse 6, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's, 
There's that connection back to chapter 1. The very thing he did with Christ, that power is now working itself in our life. That's what he wants to see. Here's the power, guys. And like Paul, we must say, God, I need the eyes of my heart to be opened. That I would not hear this and just quickly move on, but that, oh, something would touch me and mark me when I think about what God has done. And then we touch, where are we at here? Okay, we're, we're good, we're good. Then we touch one of the most profound statements that I think human language is inadequate to express, but God has ordained us to try to do it, so we try to do it. But verse 7, what's the purpose? What's this all for? Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Why did God do all this? Here's why, did, why all this divine activity of, of uh, adopting and sealing and all these things. He summarizes it basically here that for eternity, you and I would serve as trophies of grace, forever radiating out to ourselves, to one another, the goodness and grace and kindness of God in Christ Jesus, forever and ever and ever. The church which is really, if you think about it, a society of pardoned rebels (laughs) that have now become sons and daughters. We've been uniquely designed for for eternity to become the the vessel which demonstrates the goodness of God. We become the vessel that shines the, uh, the, um, the kindness of God that's found in Jesus Christ. And let me, let me just encourage you with this. You can go sit on it more. Look at some of these words. So that in the coming ages... So this purpose will be fully fulfilled in the coming ages. So we live in the present age that's marked by sin and suffering, right? Now Jesus has brought the age to come when he came with the Holy Spirit. So we see this tension of goodness of God, healing, deliverance, salvation, but we also see brokenness. Let me encourage you with this, though. If you look around and see brokenness in your life and in the world you live in, and if that's the sole barometer you use to assess the goodness of God or his purposes, you will miss it. Because this says he has purposes that extend beyond this present age. It's like God is saying, I want you to see beyond your 80-so years or whatever it is on this world, and I want you to ask me to show you billions of years from now. Because I have purposes that will never be fulfilled in this present age, but only will be fulfilled in the coming ages. And you at heart will never be fully, like, full of joy in life if you limit to what God is able to do to what you see right now. But we say, God, help me to see past and say, oh, my goodness, for the ages to come, God has plans for us. And what is it that he's going to show something, guys? God wants to, that means he wants to, it's just unto his glory. He wants to show something. Why did he create the world? To show his riches, which is, is in all areas of his life. To show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is amazing. For all of eternity, God's going to show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. First of all, they're immeasurable, which means they never run out. And it's towards us. So God is going to be infinitely glorified. He gets the glory. We get the joy. (laughs) He's going to be forever showing us something right to us that's going to bring joy to your heart. If you look around and you don't feel that, I want you to know God has purposes that extend beyond the present age. That that this, this, um, you'll never grow bored. Billions of years from now, can we think about that for a moment? Billions of years from now, we're going to still be excited at what God is showing us, and he's going to say, I've only just begun to surprise you. (laughs) Think about that. That's amazing. I've only just begun to surprise you. 
And it's in grace, which means there'll never be a point that we are worthy of it or that we start saying, I'm deserving of it. We'll forever be just like yielded to his mercy. And it's in his kindness towards us. So what he's going to do for eternity, it's towards you, it's towards me. I feel like what Lord was really speaking is that this is so personal. His displaying of his riches of grace and kindness towards us, um, those riches, I feel like uh, this is kind of the picture. He's not like a, uh, a impersonal philanthropist who has lots of resources, money, who comes around and just throws out his riches to the crowds and keeps it moving. No, no, no. The riches that he has, he will, they'll be toward us. He's not like an impersonal philanthropist, but he's like a loving father who will bring you into his lap. And forever he will be keep giving. There will be these father-daughter moments, father-son moments where he'll be showing you things and will be stunned with excitement and awe as to what it is that he's doing forever and ever and ever. These are the same people who were dead, cut off, and destined to be separated. But God in his power has done this. And then finally, this last section, verse 8 to 10. It says, for by grace, Paul has to remind us how this has all happened. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, verse 9, and not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's amazing. God saves in such a unique way that it brings maximal glory to his name, which if you've heard us speak about this, that's actually the most kind thing God can do. Because as John Piper, you've ever heard him, always says, God has wired us to be most satisfied when God is most glorified. So God has uniquely, is uniquely saving us in such a way that it brings him maximal glory, which will actually bring us the greatest pleasure. And at the same time, it's simultaneously obliterating any chance of man boasting in himself. Now, if you would say, wow, that kind of stinks. He knocks the wind out of our sails of boasting. It's glorious news. Here's why. The reason why we cannot boast is because everything has been given. Everything has been provided. What can man boast if God has freely given all? 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, Do not boast in me, for all is yours. And you're in Christ, and Christ is in God. So the reason why we don't boast is because there's actually nothing left to go after in the sense of that we're getting something outside of what Christ has accomplished. We pursue and press in to see deeper things, but it still all comes by what he achieved. Do you not know that you will co-reign with Christ in the new heaven, new earth? You'll, you'll, sons and daughters, co- co-heirs with Christ. There's nothing else that God could give us. There's nothing else so that we can get outside of what he's done. Therefore, there's no reason to boast, for man has received all. And to just further that, he finishes it here in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. I love that. The reason why we don't boast is we're God's workmanship. He, it's like an artist. He has created something. This is new creation language. Guys, God is not just dealing with a few stray pieces of our soul. God has, is, has and is, it's being worked out now, radically made us into a new creation. We're changed in every way, and we are being changed. And it's his workmanship. We're his masterpiece. That's another word used there. If you want to know what an artist is capable of, what do they take you to? Their masterpiece. They'll show you many things, but if you really want to know what their potential is, they'll take you to their masterpiece. God says the work that he has done in us is his masterpiece. And he finished it by saying, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. (laughs) 
The very ones that once walked in death are now walking in good works as new creations, releasing by the Spirit of God the new life that they've been given and seeing all around them be transformed and renewed. This is just mind-blowing. And our good works are really his good works. Not that we're not, like, doing them, but really it's saying beforehand, God had set all this up so that every work that we do, ultimately he gets the glory and we get the joy of being a part of it. Amen? I'm excited. This is glorious news. Let's um. We're so happy you could join us on the Home Church Podcast. We pray this week's message encourages you to behold the Lord Jesus and bring his kingdom wherever you go. You can visit us online at myhomechurch.org, subscribe to our YouTube channel, or follow us on social media. If you would like to give to this ministry, text the amount to 84321. Bless you.